0: This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life, but he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven Given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God. Which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Before we open our Bibles this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're just so thankful that we have this time to be reminded of your grace and your mercy and your love, of all that you have provided for us spiritually and that enriches our lives, gives us capacity for life and for liberty a capacity to uh, handle the situations of adversity that we face, but also to appreciate your wonderful blessings in our lives, giving us a focus of gratitude for all that we have. And Father, we thank you that we have your word to teach us, to admonish us, to correct us, and to point us to the direction we need to go as we uh, prepare ourselves and equip ourselves through your word to serve you. And that we may do all of this for your honor and glory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, although it will take us a little while before we start looking at that. And so I want to focus this morning on the ascension of Christ and the angelic revolt. This is something that I don't think is taught by a lot of different people. It is taught by a number that are, but it's not a doctrine that is taught much anymore for a variety of different reasons. And the foundation for this is actually found back in the first chapter of Ephesians, which we studied before and we'll get to again later today. But I want to review a few things uh, very briefly, just because we have a number of people here who are either visitors or they haven't been uh, here for some of the previous uh, lessons the three or four weeks before. So what we have seen is that, When Jesus came at the first advent, when he took on humanity and entered into human history through a virgin conception and birth, it wasn't clear to the Jewish people from their study of Old Testament prophecy that there would be two advents, because the way things were telescoped in the Old Testament it these things were mixed together in some verses like psalms i mean like isaiah 61:1 through 3 when jesus stood up to read from the scrolls of isaiah that one sabbath morning uh, selectively choosing that day to be in his home synagogue that he stopped reading halfway through the second verse because the f- He knew that all that would be fulfilled in his life the first time was that which was described in the first half of those three verses. And that the second half of verse 2 and all of verse 3 would not be fulfilled until he returned the second time. But this was not something that was readily observable because of the way uh, the Jewish religious leaders had misinterpreted the Old Testament. Jews wanted the cross before the crown, I mean, the crown before the cross, though it was God's plan that the Messiah must suffer first and then the glories of the kingdom. And so, because of that misunderstanding, they refused to accept Jesus the first time when he came because they were anticipating the glories of the kingdom. They were looking for a political Messiah who would rescue them from the Roman Empire, and they were not looking for a Messiah who would free them from spiritual death and the shackles of sin. And so because of that, when John the Baptist, our third point, when John the Baptist Then later Jesus, and then later his disciples all proclaimed the same message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, The people did not respond. The leaders did not respond. Many did, but those who represented the nation did not. Jesus was not accepted, and this reached a midpoint in his ministry where that opposition became Obvious, and the Jewish religious leaders accused Jesus of performing his miracles under the power of Beelzebul, under the power of Satan, and that was the official rejection of Jesus as their Messiah, and they uh, turned their back on God's greatest gift. That term, uh, the term that is used in that passage to describe that, is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. A one-time one-era sin that only uh, those who lived in Israel at that time could commit. It's not something anybody else can commit. It's because it was a corporate sin of their rejection of the Messiah, and that led to a postponement of the kingdom so that it is, did not come. And at that point, we went through a number of differences. That At that point, Jesus' ministry changed. It wasn't the same as it had been during the first part because in the first part, he's offering the kingdom and he performs his miracles for all. But in the second part, he does not, he no longer offers the kingdom and he wants his miracles kept secret. They are used now to uh, 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 give confidence and accreditation to the disciples and his focus is now on training them for their future ministry in as yet an undisclosed dispensation, which is our present dispensation, the church age. So the kingdom has been postponed. We're not living in a spiritual form of the kingdom. We are not living in an era where there are already some aspects of the kingdom, but it's not yet fully here, what is known as already not yet. There are similarities in the ministry of the Holy Spirit in this dispensation, but we must remember that similarities are not the issue. The issue is the differences. We have a Supreme Court that focuses on the similarities between men and women, and so and so that men and men and women and women can now marry, but they forgot that there are differences between men and women, and that's what makes the difference. That's what means that we are to have a heterosexual uh, marriage and not a homosexual marriage. So the differences are important and not the similarities between this age and the age to come. The result of their rejection of Jesus is that eventually Jesus is is, uh, arrested, crucified, buried, and then resurrected uh, but the people of the kingdom had rejected their king, so the king had to expand his base. This was not foreseen in the Old Testament because the Old Testament focused only on what was going to be offered to the Jews and what God's plan for Israel was, with no hint that they would fail, with no hint that they would reject the Messiah, and with no hint that there would be a intervening dispensation or age between the coming of the Messiah the first time, and a coming kingdom. So that left it all optional for them, and they rejected, so something's going to happen. It's not a second plan. It's not plan B. God the Father knew it from all of eternity, but it is not was not revealed in the Old Testament. So under our sixth point, since his... People rejected him. The next stage in the plan was to bring in a new people to fulfill certain objectives related to the angelic conflict or the angelic revolt. This new people would be based on a spiritual heritage, those who trusted in Jesus as Messiah, not a racial heritage as those who were the physical seed of Abraham we are the spiritual seed of abraham because we follow him in faith and so galatians 3 focuses on that aspect so to bring about to bring about this new people jesus ascended in order to send the holy spirit and give birth to the church on that day of pentecost in ad 33 it was necessary jesus said for him to go to the father so that then the Father and Jesus would together would send the Holy Spirit. So in John 16:7, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, that is the paraclete, the comforter, which is a reference to God, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And so this is foundational for us to understand a couple of things about the Holy Spirit, just as a quick observation. In the ancient church, the early church, when you came to those periods of what are referred to as the ecumenical creeds, the period of the church councils, which are foundational to our understanding of Christianity. The term ecumenical there is not the nasty word that does not have the nasty meaning that it came to have by the end of the 19th century. But in the early centuries, in the first five or six centuries, there's only one body of Christ. There's only one church. And it is the universal church. And the word for universal is Catholic. So it is the Catholic church. And sometimes it's called the old Catholic church but that's that's what that describes it doesn't become the roman catholic church with any of those distinctive doctrines of the roman church until you get past 600 so in the in 425 Later on in around 460 and in the early part of 500, you, or excuse me, I am jumped ahead of myself, 325, around 366, 420s, and again about 450, there are these four ecumenical councils. And the first is the Council of Nicaea. And then subsequently you have two more which deal with the relationship of Jesus to Uh, what was Jesus when he came Uh, Ephesus dealt with what was Jesus before he came he's eternal God what is Jesus when he came that's the problem that they dealt with at the next two councils and they get it solid and define it well in the fourth one which is the uh, council of Chalcedon but what happens in this is they, they have a phrase in there that is from the Council of Constantinople, which is the third one, they have a phrase that the Father sends the Holy Spirit. That phrase was added to at the Synod of Toledo in the seventh century. And what they added was in Latin, filioque, which means and the Son. And they added this phrase to recognize that the Holy Spirit proceeds not just from the Father, but from the Father and the Son, because the Father and the Son are co-equal and co-eternal. And the Eastern Church said, no, 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 you can't do that. The Eastern Church has never accepted the filioque clause, and that was one of the three reasons that they split from the Western Church in the 11th century. And because of that, many scholars say that this foundational error in their understanding of the Trinity is one reason nobody, no nation in the Eastern Church ever came to understand the value and significance of the individuals as people uh, in, their, in the nations. It always has this top-down view of, uh, of authority uh, with no trinity of people, uh, of three persons who are co-equal. And as a result of that, this heretical failure shaped Eastern Orthodoxy to always have a, a strong tendency to only have strong dictators, tyrannies, or monarchs. Theology makes a difference. How you view God is going to affect the decisions you make and how you understand reality. And that's one of my great illustrations that I go to to show that doctrine really does make a difference. Now, you may not have understood all the implications of that, and it took me many years of study to work all of that out and to come to understand the whys and the wherefores in the thinking, but that's the conclusion. So Jesus said that he has to go away in order to send the helper and in other passages in John 16 and as well as in John 14, he refers to him as another helper, alas, another of the same kind, emphasizing the full deity of God, uh, the Holy Spirit. So that's what we're looking at, is something is happening in relation to the ascension that is directly related to the coming of God, the Holy Spirit, and something distinctive that God is doing in the lives of believers in this church age and through the church as a whole that was never done before. And that is one of the things that makes us so distinct and makes our calling, as we studied in Ephesians 4, 1, so significant. We are elevated to a high position. We are, as Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, uh, verses four and five is that we have uh, been made alive together in him, we have been raised together that 's the ascension, and we have been seated together in him that 's the session that those three things are tied together the instant we 're saved our new legal position is that we have new life, we're made alive together, we're raised together with him, we're seated together with him in the heavenlies, which means the church now is a heavenly people. That is our legal position. Whereas Israel's promises were all tied to the earth and the land and that fulfillment of those promises in the millennial kingdom and into eternity future, that Israel is an earthly people. And so we have to understand there is this vital distinction God makes between his plan for Israel and his plan for the church. So we're continuing this study this morning, and we're going to focus on these two things, the ascension, which completes the strategic victory of Christ on the cross, and second, the strategic victory of Christ that sets up this new phase or dispensation in the plan of God. Now, these two terms, strategy and tactics, may be uh, unfamiliar to some of you, and a lot of people use them as if they are synonyms, but technically, strategy refers to the overall plan of a war or of a battle. For example, early on in the Second World War, after the Japanese had attacked us at Pearl Harbor, that surprise attack on December the 7th of 1941, that uh, President Roosevelt and Prime Minister Winston Churchill met together and decided the overall strategy would uh, be to focus on Europe first, not ignoring the Pacific, but that the priority was to defeat the Nazis in Europe, and then to complete the task with the Japanese in the Pacific. So that's their strategy. Then when they looked at the details of how they're going to accomplish that strategic victory, that's when tactics would come in, and tactics would be something you describe down to the uh, individual... uh, in individual decisions that are made in relation to uh, individual soldiers or platoons or companies or uh, different other units. And so strategies, the overall plan and tactics are how you accomplish the overall plan. So the strategic victory of Christ is because he pays the penalty for sin, and that is his, the ultimate defeat of Satan. It's accomplished on the cross, but there are still things that need to be accomplished in the life of believers, and this relates to our uh, tactical responsibilities, and so that's how I'm using uh, those terms as, as we go forward. So we looked at this, that the ascension is completing the strategic victory of christ on the cross up until this time jesus has been active on the earth even after the resurrection but now things are going to change and we studied the best and overall description of the ascension the most full description in the in acts chapter one and it's just the central verse of that is acts one nine now when he had spoken these things, given his last words, his last direction to the disciples to wait in Jerusalem uh, for the coming of the Holy Spirit, and that that coming would be defining their future. That's what the book of Acts is all about. Acts 1-8 lays out the outline of the entire book of Acts that they would uh, have that ministry in Jerusalem and then in Judea and Samaria, that's around chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, and then the expansion to the uttermost parts of the world, that's the remainder of the book of Acts. And so they were to wait there, but once the Holy Spirit came, then that new dispensation would be uh, enacted. So he spoke these things while they watched. He was taken up. And a cloud received him. That often a cloud represents angels or it represents the presence of God. And so that cloud being there, a literal cloud, receiving him, a passive verb, he's not actively doing this. He is receiving the action and God is accepting him and then he goes out of their sight. Now, this is described in a number of other passages in the New Testament that I've waited to go to until this time. In Hebrews, there are a number of passages in Hebrews that relate to this uh, ascension of Christ and his session. And Hebrews 4:14 4, and 15 sets this up. In Hebrews 4:14 4, we're told, seeing then that we have a great high priest. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our high priest who has passed through the heavens. Now, most people just read through that pretty quickly, and they don't stop and think about what that means. And we need to think about what that means. He has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast our confession, that is, what we say we believe. So what we're told is we have this high priest that relates to Jesus' present ministry. He has three titles. He is prophet, priest, and king. And he functioned in his role as a prophet during the first advent. He functions as a priest now during this dispensation of the church and he will function in his role as king not now but when he comes again because as we saw briefly we'll look at it again next week in daniel 7 the dominion that is the kingdom is not given to jesus and you don't have a kingdom without a king so this isn't given to Jesus until it is taken away from the Antichrist at the end of the tribulation period. That's Daniel 7. It's also seen clearly in Revelation 5 and then Revelation 19. So Jesus is not actively involved in a kingdom today. This is confusion for most, most Christians. He is doing something else. He is our high priest And he is functioning in relation to our high priest. That's what we see in so many different passages. So it says he passes through the heavens. This is a a perfect active participle. He passed through, past tense, completed past action. Uh, Perfect. That's what the perfect tense means. Uh, Action that is completed in the past with the results that continue. He passed through the heavens. And it means that he passed through what are the heavens. So we have to look at what the Bible says as the heavens. It's a plural word. There's more than one heaven. And the Bible uses this term, and it is used in a way that expresses what we observe from the earth. So that the first heaven is the earth's atmosphere, that which uh, is between the land and water on the earth, And when you reach the outer edge of the atmosphere, that is all the first heaven. Then there is a second heaven, and that second heaven is the universe. Everything from our atmosphere out to the edge of the universe, which is finite. Evolution says everything is infinite, but that's because they've made matter equivalent to God. They are materialists. And anyone who buys into a Darwinian evolutionary framework is buying into a materialist worldview. So the second heaven is a finite heaven. It is the universe, and Jesus is pictured here. Remember, he is in his resurrection body. He is the God-man. He is 100% undiminished deity and 100% true humanity. And in his human resurrection body, he leaves the planet, goes up, and passes physically through the heavens. Now, that probably didn't take him but a nanosecond, but that's how he goes. Now, I think he went more slowly going up because they could watch him for a few seconds, and then they're still trying to see what happened to him when the angels came up and said, why are you gazing into heaven like this? Um. And so that's the second heaven. And so Jesus, as the God-man in his resurrection body, is the first person to go through outer, the first human to go through outer space. And then he arrives at the third heaven. Now, the third heaven may be another dimension. It may be uh, something else we don't know. And there's a lot of speculation. But that is where the throne of God is located, And so he ascends, we learn, that he goes through the heavens and he will sit at the right hand of the Father on the Father's throne, not on his throne. He doesn't get his throne until the second coming. If you carefully read the book of Revelation, there will be reference after reference to the phrase the one who sits on the throne. And the one who sits on the throne is always distinguished from the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God is the second person of the Trinity. The one who sits on the throne is the Father. And what we are told in Revelation 3.21, Jesus promises believers in this age who are victorious that you can sit with me on my throne just as I sat on my Father's throne. So this period of time, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father on the Father's throne, but he's not just sitting there. There are certain things that are taking place, and one of those is that he is our high priest. Hebrews 4.15 says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in all areas that would be a better way to translate that that word the noun parasmas which is the word for um, that sometimes translate testing and sometimes temptation because they're two sides of the same coin so the same word is used uh, for both and you have to look at the context we think of tempted as being that when we are internally attracted to something that is sinful Jesus was never internally attracted to something that is sinful because he didn't have a sin nature. We have a sin nature, so we, there's there's an external cause for that temptation, and sometimes we are drawn to it and sometimes we are not. It depends on the day. It depends on uh, a number of other factors, but it is that subjective attraction to sin that is what we normally think of as being tempted. Testing is the objective presentation of the option to sin. So you have a test going on with uh, Eve in the garden when the serpent lies about God and what his real agenda is. But as she looks at the fruit... She has a desire. That's when temptation begins, but sin isn't conceived until you act. That's according to James chapter 1. So Christ never sinned. He was never internally attracted to sin, but he was objectively tested many, many times. And of course, at the beginning of his ministry, he is uh, tested three times by Satan, and he passes all three exams with flying colors. So he's been tested in all things, that is, in every category. Whatever the category of sin is that befalls you and that is part of your area of weakness or my area of weakness, Jesus was in some situation at one point of time or another where that option to sin was made available to him, yet he did not sin. Now, it's not because he was God. A lot of people make that mistake and they say, well, of course, he didn't sin. He was God. Then it wouldn't matter. There's no application from that. We're told that Jesus passes these, these tests in relation to his humanity because he had to pass them as a man, as a human, not pass them on relying upon his deity, but relying upon the same things that you and I have which is the Word of God and the Spirit of God, because he's demonstrating that it is possible for a man to not sin but to rely upon God. He is called the second Adam because the first Adam made it seem as if it wouldn't be possible to not sin, and Jesus demonstrates in his humanity that he was able not to sin. And so this qualifies him to go to the cross and so and qualifies him... To be our high priest. We'll come back to that topic later as we pursue this. Then we go to 1 Peter chapter 3. When we look at 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter, this is another passage that is focusing upon the ascension, that Christ has gone into the heavens. And that's the Greek word peruomai, which simply means to go, often used of going on a journey, uh, and he has gone into heaven. And now it adds to what we learned in Hebrews 4.14, that he is at the right hand of God. Now, that's understood from something in the Old Testament, which we will get to. In Psalm 110.1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. And so when Jesus ascended, the Father says to him as the God-man in terms of not so much in terms of his deity, because in terms of his deity, he's eternal. He has always been in heaven. He has always been with the Father. He, He says, I and the Father are one. But now something new has happened. Jesus as a man, as a human being, a perfect human being in now resurrection body is going to sit at the right hand of the Father in heaven so that he has been elevated and he is now uh, at the Father's right hand Whereas First John 2, 1 and 2 describe he is our advocate. He is uh, standing for us and pleading our case as believers whenever we sin. So he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, and look at what we have next. Angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him. Now these phrases, authorities from the word exousia, and powers from the word dunamis, are terms that are used to describe different categories of angelic beings. In terms of broad categories, you have the two broad categories of holy or elect angels on the one hand and those who rebelled against God with Satan on the other hand. It was a rebellion, so we refer to this as the angelic revolt. It began at some time in eternity past, when the angel that is named uh, Lucifer, which is a mistranslation of the Hebrew Halal Ben-Shahar, uh, the uh, brilliant star son of the dawn, and that is really, if you're going to pick a name, that would be his name, Halal Ben-Shahar. And when he looks at how great he is and how God gave him all these things better than all of the other angels, then he turns to pride and arrogance, thinking that, that he should be involved, um, be the object of worship. And this is described in Ezekiel chapter 28, verses uh, 12 and fo- or 14 and following, and Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, that he succumbs to arrogance. He chooses the path of rebellion against God, And he is able to sway about a third of the angels to follow him in that revolt. And so this is described as the angelic revolt. And God has already sentenced the angels and Lucifer to the lake of fire. That is in Matthew chapter 25, uh, 43, that the, uh, the lake of fire, which has been already prepared, perfect tense, prepared for the uh, Lucifer and his angels. But why aren't they there? Why didn't God throw them into the lake of fire? Well we've got a whole series or sub-series on the angelic revolt and the bottom line is because God wanted to demonstrate some things about his character. So apparently and this is just a theological deduction looking at different passages that we deduce that Satan must have challenged the Justice of God's uh, decision, and it would have not only have to do with well, how can a just God let His creatures suffer eternally in heaven? I mean, in hell, in the lake of fire. But sort of the subtext is that is that the penalty doesn't fit the crime. And so, what God? One of the things God is demonstrating in this age between Adam and the future new heavens and new earth is that he is showing that his decision was right because all of the suffering, all of the misery, the famines, the floods, the wars, uh, the persecution of Christians and anybody else by different governments, and it's just horrific today, the amount of persecution going on against Christians in, in all of the Muslim countries that you never hear about from the news media because they've all become uh, fans of Islam since 9-11. But all of that suffering, all of those horrors, everything, is a result of Adam eating a piece of fruit. Now, if I were to ask most of you to make a list of the worst sins, you would think of a lot of other things. But the sin that put us in this spot was eating a piece of fruit because it was a sin of disobedience. And so he's following Satan. He is rebelling against God by eating a piece of fruit. And so it is that act of disobedience, which is an expression of an inner desire to revolt against the authority of God, that sets all this in motion. And so we have these angels that followed Satan... And God is giving them, as it were, an object lesson in his grace and his mercy and that indeed the punishment does fit the crime. And so Peter says that Christ went into heaven, is at the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him. Now that isn't the dominion that he will have when the kingdom is established, it is because he's elevated now above all of these things, he's sitting sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And so he has authority over all of these things. They have been made, they've been forced to submit to his authority. Now, I could take a long diversion here and talk about this is one of the reasons that when the uh, Jesus would cast demons out they would they they knew who he was, and he would tell them to shut up and not to t- talk about it and they would have to respond to him but but that's that had to do with other factors, but he is elevated in authority over them and then we go back to Ephesians chapter one, and Ephesians chapter one is uh, also establishing this issue with um, Christ uh, and, the, and the ascension. And so in Ephesians 1.20, it says, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So you see what we're doing here with these verses is the last three lessons we focused more on the ascension, and now we're transitioning to what is happening during the session Okay, so that's the shift. He is seated at the right hand in the heavenlies, in the heavenly places. And Ephesians 121 also puts this above the angelic powers. He is far above all principality and power and might and dominion. Those those words related to might and dominion are the same words we saw in, in 1 Peter. And he is elevated above every name that is named, not only in this age, the church age, but also in that which is to come. And he put, that is, he, God the Father, put all things in subjection under his feet, and then what? And gave him as head over all things, and head refers to authority, head over all things to the church. So this is talking about the that God now begins a new people of God, not to replace Israel, but to demonstrate certain things because of God, because of the Jews' rejection of Messiah. The church is going to receive additional blessings, and they are an an additional witness to the grace and the mercy of God. Now, the word that I've been using is session. And that's a theological term. We don't usually think of being seated as being in in session, but that's what the word means. It comes from a Latin word, sessionum, which means to sit. So this has been used in theology for centuries, and therefore it uh, shouldn't be uh, misunderstood or just replaced with something else because we're not bright enough to understand our English language you know English is the best language in the world to teach theology and the reason is is we have had 500 years since the beginning of the Protestant Reformation and even before during the period of the early church and, uh, and English as we know it really didn't come into effect until uh, the, the 1500s per se But so many of the terms that we use in theology are like session. They come out of Latin, and that theological vocabulary was developed during the early church and Middle Ages in Latin. And then when you get into the post-Reformation period, the development of theology in the English-speaking peoples, we have a rich, rich, rich theological vocabulary. And if you don't think that, just go try to speak to some people in other languages that have no biblical influence and try to talk about justification reconciliation imputation, uh, confession of sin uh, the session of Christ, and your translators if they haven 't had much experience are going to look at you like you 're speaking another language We had that happen um, in two thousand I went with Jim Myers over to to um, uh, we went to Kazakhstan and And that was really interesting because this side of the room were Kazakh speakers. This side of the room were Russian speakers. So we would have to deal with two translators. And not only that, and I'm teaching on the spiritual life. No, I was teaching on the spiritual life and, and also the angelic revolt. And the Kazakhs on this side of the room only had a Kazakh New Testament. They had no Old Testament. That's a lot of fun, trying to teach the fall of Satan and Ezekiel and Isaiah and other passages when they've never heard of or seen an Old Testament. And the pathetic New Testament they had wasn't translated from Greek. It was translated from the NIV. And then this side of the room had the Russian synodal text, but they didn't have an updated version of the um, Russian Bible. So the Russian synodal text is to modern Russia is something worse than the new, than the old King James is to English. And what's printed today is the King James Bible has been updated a lot over the years because the language has changed. So it's not what you try to read it as it was actually translated in 1611 and you'll be struggling. So that was a lot, lot of fun trying to uh, address these things. But uh, I discovered in all these years going over to Ukraine what a rich language English is. And we've got these roots in, in uh, Latin and other things. And we can communicate so clear, clearly because of this rich vocabulary. So we're looking at the session. And this is what is happening, part of the, our Lord's work as the... Um, as a priest is the giving of gifts and so what happens in verse verses 9 and 10 is that Paul is going to quote from Psalm 68:18 and we see a, a glimmer of how he taught he would take a verse and he would talk about what each phrase meant just as we do today but not all churches do this because they're not quite on target now this expression, he ascended. What does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? Now that really doesn't. That's just an English translation. It means that the earth is the lower part. Okay, he descended unto the earth. This isn't talking about the victorious proclamation in that's mentioned in First Peter where our Lord went to the uh, angels in prison and announced that he he had completed the victory on the cross. This is not talking about that at all. He ascended, but it means first he had to descend before he could ascend. Now, what is ascension? Ascension is leaving the surface of the planet and going to heaven. So he had to get there somehow. So that's his descent uh, to to the earth. The lower part is the earth. Uh, He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above. There we have that phrase again, all the heavens, the first heaven, the second heaven, all the way to the throne room of God, the third heaven, that for the purpose that he might fill all things, not when he got there, but eventually in his role as uh, as the Davidic king. Now Ephesians four eleven tells us that he gave gifts. Now when we go to Psalm sixty eight eighteen, which we don't have time to get to today, we'll see that in Psalm sixty eight eighteen it's a victory march. It, it really goes back to when uh, David in Second Samuel is taking the temple up the Temple Mount to the to i mean, taking the Ark of the Covenant up the. Uh, way to the temple mount to install god on his throne as it were it's all a picture of of christ's ascension to uh, on the mount on the temple mount in the holy of holies and as he goes that way every six feet or eight feet something like that he has to he has a sacrifice so it was a ceremony that was rich and profound as they are thinking about God completing what began with the conquest of the Canaanites, and now he is ascending in victory to establish his throne on the earth in the Holy of Holies. And as a result of that, people gave gifts to the temple. The difference here is that it is Christ, it is applied by Paul to Christ, that in six, Psalm 68, the God the Father, it is God who is ascending. Here it is Christ who is ascending. And in Psalm 68, gifts are given to God, and here Christ gives gifts to men. But the point of the comparison is that it is a victory march. It is a picture of the conquest of enemies. And that is exactly what we see. And as a result of Christ's conquest of the enemies, his elevation over the authorities and the powers of the fallen angels, he is going to give gifts of leadership to the church. And so this is what is emphasized in so many passages. We talked about Ephesians 4.14. We have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, and Hebrews one three, when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Psalm one hundred and ten one, Hebrews one thirteen also cites Psalm one hundred and ten one, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Psalm uh, the next verse in Hebrews one five cites Psalm two seven as well as Second Samuel seven fourteen. You are my son. Today I have begotten you, and again he says, this is from 2 Samuel 7.14, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Hebrews 7.17, for it is attested of him you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Uh, In Acts 5.31, uh, the disciples say he is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And this is related to Psalm 110, 1, exalted to his right hand. Hebrews 10:12 and 13, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, he sat down at the right hand of God. And then Acts 2.30 and Acts 2.34 also recite this, that he sits at the Father's right hand, and this just goes on and on, that it is now uh, the Lord Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father. He is there at the helm of the universe overseeing human history, and there is a man, not a Klingon, not a Wookiee, There is a man at the right hand over the universe, and he is our high priest and our advocate. And all of this is a consequence of that ascension and session, which will continue next week. Father, thank you for this opportunity to come to understand these emphases in Scripture related to the current role of our Lord and Savior seated at the Father's right hand and learning that positionally we are also seated in him and that this is our legal position and the implications of this are truly profound. And Father, we thank you that we have been given so much, as Paul tells us in Ephesians, blessed with every spiritual blessing because of the unique plan that you have for the church in this church age and that means each and every one of us as a believer, and all of the assets that you have given us, uh, in order to face life and to face the tactical challenges in this angelic revolt, Father, we pray that if there's anyone here who's never trusted in Christ as Savior, anyone who has uh, never come to understand that Christ died personally for uh, for them. Uh, May they come to understand that, that we do not earn your favor by our good works, by our morality, by our good intentions, but because we trust in Christ as the one who died for us. We accept his free gift of salvation so that those who believe in him are not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son, that it is faith and faith alone that secures our salvation faith in Christ. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we've studied uh, this morning, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.